In your pew Bibles, please turn with me to our preaching text tonight, Psalm 11. Psalm that presses us with a very urgent question. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And we receive a comforting answer and a glorious promise here in this psalm. Psalm 11, Psalm of David. He begins, in the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but His soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let Him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur, and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold His face. We're going to end our reading of God's holy word there tonight. So what do you think about the times we're living in? It's one of those questions that makes you a little nervous to answer. Maybe you're sitting at the Thanksgiving table with uh, some family members who don't share your political views. So what do you think about the times we're living in? You start to sweat a little bit. Maybe it's a colleague at work who asks that to you in passing, and you say, well, how long do you have for a conversation? Because it's really a complicated question when you think about it. What do you think about the times we're living in? In one way, the times we're living in, this particular period of human history, is, is remarkable. It's wonderful. It's a time of unprecedented prosperity in the Western world. It's a time of technological sophistication. We can heat and cool our homes. We can open and close our garage doors. We can even feed our pets, all while being absent from home with a simple tap on a smartphone app. Satellites, high-speed internet, the, the complicated web of social media gives us access to information on a scale never before experienced in human history. It's a remarkable time to be alive. But if someone asks the question, have all those developments, all these advancements made us happier, wiser, safer? Do they provide peace of mind and a more fulfilling life? Well, if that was the question, I think we would probably say no. Because in spite of all the stuff to which we now have access, the world seems to be a more frightening and insecure place. Terrorism, vandalism, social unrest have reached alarming levels over the last decade, and not just around the world, in other parts of the world, but in our own country, in our own neighborhoods. Our politicians no longer feel the need to hide their corruption. It's common knowledge that they are moved by special interest groups and the almighty dollar rather than motivated by what is just and what is right. Social norms, moral values, once unquestioned for thousands of years, deemed common sense, are now considered to be 
oppressive and repulsive by the culture movers of our day. And sadly, the church hasn't fared very well either amidst all these changes. Churches today, many are falling over themselves trying to to reinterpret God's Word to fit the mores of our culture today. Truly, the, the social, the political, the moral, the religious foundations of Western society appear to be crumbling before our very eyes. And so we can understand something of the pressing question that David's counselors posed to him in the psalm that I just read. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? David is in danger of of being ambushed by the wicked. They've bent their bows in his direction. Their fingers are poised to send deadly arrows into his path to defeat him as the king of Israel. And so his friends advise him to to run for the hills, and that might seem to us like good advice, to just get out of here while we still have time. Perhaps like David, we're tempted to let our circumstances drive us to despair, to let our circumstances loosen our grip upon the promises of God. Maybe we've wondered from time to time, will the kingdom of God really prevail over all of this wickedness around us? Will the the foundations really hold fast in the end? But here in this inspired psalm, God calls us not to flee, not to compromise, but to take refuge in Him to take refuge in a God who is sovereign, a God who is faithful, a God who is building an eternal city with foundations, a kingdom that will last forever, filled with those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. Tonight we want to take some brief moments to look at the pressing question of this psalm, to linger on the comforting answer to that question, and then to to bask in the glorious promise that is appended to this psalm, Psalm 11. As I said, the psalm is is highlighted by, it's punctuated by a pressing question in verse 3. The the friends of David ask him, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? It's the question that that David's uh, sincere but frightened advisors ask him in the midst of a particular trial or crisis in his life. The psalm doesn't really give us any historical context, though, so that we can locate the exact situation in David's life. Some have suggested that uh, the psalm refers to David's conflict with Saul, the wicked king who sought several times to take David's life. Some have settled on the feud that David had with his wicked son Absalom sometime later, again, a time that threatened David's life. But neither of those contexts really seem to fit this psalm for one main reason, because in both those cases, David actually fled to the mountains. So this psalm really eludes our attempts to to ascribe a specific situation in David's life, perhaps allowing us to make a broader application. At very least, we could say this. We can identify David's opponents as some of the unfaithful leaders of Israel 
who were threatening to usurp David's kingly rule by mismanaging the people of Israel, in some way by violating the principles of justice and fairness and and godliness that God's law required. And it's not hard to imagine such people living in Israel, because throughout the history of the people of Israel, uh, there were wicked rulers who failed to preserve justice and righteousness uh, in Israel, which brought about the judgment upon the people of Israel and Judah later on. And whether or not David has Saul in mind when he wrote this psalm, Saul would certainly fit the description of someone appointed by God to do what is right, but, but turned around and sought to destroy the moral foundations of the people of Israel. I can think of one instance in particular recorded in 1 Samuel 22, where Saul killed 85 of the priests of God and then destroyed the entire population of the town of Nod, women and children included, simply because they gave shelter to David, God's anointed. You think about the terrible nature of Saul's deed. He was appointed directly by God for the task of of ruling Israel, of maintaining righteousness and justice, keeping godly order in Israel, but he turned around and was destroying all of those things. And the question of verse 3 lingers, what could righteous David do when the righteous or the unrighteous, the unfaithful in Israel seemed to have free reign over the kingdom? What could he do? Perhaps we can turn the question to ourselves. What can we do when our human rulers appointed by God to promote justice and punish wickedness turn around and do the exact opposite? When our rulers appointed by God instead promote wickedness, the killing of precious infants in the womb, the mutilation of children's bodies by gender reassignment surgeries, maintaining policies that that keep people down in poverty. What can the righteous do when when the rulers that God has given us promote wickedness like that and, and then turn around and punish the good? Those who have a moral conscience are labeled as bigoted and intolerant. What security do the righteous have? What is their haven of rest in the midst of the storm when the foundations all around them seem to be falling apart, crumbling before their very eyes? That's the pressing question of this psalm. And as we read, David's well-meaning counselors basically advise him to get out of Dodge. (laughs) They tell him to run for the hills, flee like a bird to the mountains, but David rebukes them. How can you say such a thing to my soul, he says to them. And David plants his feet on the foundation, on the security that God gives to his people in the midst of trouble. You notice how the psalm begins. It begins with a confident assertion, in the Lord, in our covenant God, I take refuge. And that's the comforting answer to the pressing question of David's day and ours. What can the righteous do? They can go on being the righteous. They must not flee. 
They must not compromise, but they must resist the evil of their day in the strength of the Lord. What security do the righteous have against the flaming darts of the evil one? We have a God in whom we can take refuge when all other sources of comfort and all other sources of security have fallen away. We have refuge in God. That's the comforting answer that is laid out for us in the rest of the psalm. What can the righteous do when the foundations begin to crumble? David says, we look to the Lord for security. Where is the Lord in this psalm? What's He doing in this psalm? First, where is He? Verse 4 tells us He's in His holy temple. He is on His throne in heaven. We read, the Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. Now, we just enjoyed an enlightening series by Reverend Emeyer on the tabernacle and the temple furnishings. And so, when we hear David uh, talking about the temple, we might be envisioning in our minds the, the glorious gilded temple of Solomon. We might be thinking about the, uh, the great uh, temple of Herod, which was rebuilt uh, and, and Jesus experienced in his day. But we need to remember that the temple itself had not yet been built when this psalm was written. It was not built yet in David's day. David is not thinking about the earthly temple. He's thinking about the Lord's temple in heaven from which God scans all people of the earth in absolute control, absolute sovereignty. When David talks about the Lord being on His throne in His temple, he has in mind the most holy dwelling place of God, the heavenly holy of holies, where the Lord rules over all that exists as the supreme moral standard who judges the thoughts and the intentions and the words and the actions of all people. And as the moral leadership of Israel crumbles around David, David makes his appeal to God who is on the throne in heaven. David takes heart in the knowledge that God, who is the righteous judge of heaven and earth, will certainly render judgment upon the wicked, and He will certainly come to the cause of the righteous to defend them. And that's an important lesson for us today. In our own society, we often feel vulnerable and increasingly insecure as we look at a society that is becoming more and more wicked, violently opposed to the will of God. And it's a temptation for us to think that, that we need to wage a counterattack, that we need to go on the offensive, that, that the solution uh, to the problem is to, to win the culture war, take back the media, flood Washington with conservatives. But we must realize that none of that by itself could restore the moral foundations of our society. God calls us to something far more simple, far more biblical. He says, as the foundations crumble, we should go to Him in humble obedience to His Word. 
We should come to Him with a heartfelt, patient trust in the sovereignty of God. God says through Paul in Romans 12, don't avenge yourselves. That's not your job. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. I will come to your aid. I will defend you. It's not our call to seek our security in politics, policies, or politicians, but to find our security only in our sovereign God who remains the unchanging foundation of morality and justice in the world. He will defend the cause of His righteous people. And Psalm 11 goes on to to give us further comfort in our need. We read that God is in His temple. He's on His heavenly throne. That's where He is, as it were. That's the position He holds, one of absolute sovereignty. What's He doing? What's He doing? First, the psalmist says that God is observing everything that people are doing on the earth. He's not missing out on anything. Verse 4, the end of verse 4 there, His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of men. Proverbs 15 says something very similar about God's all-knowing gaze of all that's going on on the earth. We read there, the eyes of the Lord are everywhere, keeping watch on the wicked and the good. Psalm recognizes that the wicked may be all around us all the time. They may surround us, seeking our lives. They may lie in wait, as David describes in verse 2, waiting in the dark to ambush the righteous when we least expect it. And don't we see that today? Don't we see the wicked in our land devising new and subtle ways to attack the church and to attack its God? But our all-seeing God sees them. He knows their plans even before they are devised. He exposes their works of darkness in in the light of His omniscience, and they will not be able to accomplish a single one of their plans if their goal is the downfall of the people of God. That's the sense of verse 5. We read in verse 5, the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. David says, as the, 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 the judge of heaven, the Lord tests the righteous and the wicked. He finds the righteous pleasing to him, so he defends the cause of his people, but he pronounces a guilty verdict upon the wicked. He prepares judgments for those who are wicked. Notice what he says there in the end of verse 5 and verse 6. His soul, God's soul, the Lord's soul, hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. The call is, let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. David says the Lord has a holy passion to hate what is wicked and love what is good. That means that he has a holy love for the righteous, but he has a holy hatred for the wicked. And when the foundations crumble, the righteous have this certain knowledge that their God will protect them, but the wicked 
even while they're in the act of shooting their flaming darts at the righteous from the shadows, even at that time, they themselves will be destroyed by the judgment of God. Now, it's a judgment that may not be instantaneous. The righteous may have to suffer on earth for a time, a short time. But when that judgment comes, the psalmist says, it will be worse than that experienced by Sodom and Gomorrah. On that final day, the church's enemies will drink the cup of God's wrath to its very dregs. We have a picture of this in Revelation chapter 14, verse 10. We read here that those who have the mark of the beast upon them will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of His anger, and He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. That is the end result for those who oppose the God of heaven and earth. The church's enemies will drink the cup of God's wrath to its dregs, but the righteous will take their seat at the feast of the Lamb and begin enjoying the new wine of God's saving work. So like David, we have reason to stay put. We have every reason to to keep on being the righteous, even as the world crumbles around us. And it seems that the foundations are being destroyed. We don't need to run. We don't need to hide. We certainly must not compromise. We can stay. We can work. We can serve. We can witness. We can pray. We can keep on living. And the reason that we can do this is because we know that the Lord is in His holy temple. He is on His throne in heaven. Our faithful covenant God is still in control, and He is going to work everything for the good of His people, for His purposes, and for the glory of His church. That's the promise. That's the comforting answer to the pressing question, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? They can go on being the righteous in the strength and the power and the security of God. There's one more thing here in this psalm. We're told that those who trust in God have a glorious promise that makes the sufferings of this life seem light and momentary. Look at verse 7 with me. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Notice the stark contrast. The psalmist is talking about the future, the future of both the righteous and the wicked. The wicked's future is bleak. God will be present in their life in judgment, and His grace and His love will be absent as as He rains fire and sulfur upon them for eternity. But what will the all-seeing God do for the righteous? He will give them the gift of seeing Him face to face. You remember that Moses asked for that gift to see God face to face. It's recorded in Exodus 33 for us. And and God's response was, of course, no. (laughs) No, Moses, you can't handle it. You couldn't see my face and live. But when Christ appeared... 
After Christ appeared, this is what the Apostle John wrote to Christians in 1 John 3, 2. When He, that is the glorified Jesus Christ, appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. The righteous will see God. Because our Lord Jesus, God in the flesh, passed through the heavens into the holy temple, came into the exalted throne room of God, into the holy of holies after making atonement, propitiation for our sins at the cross of Calvary. And He came there and He presented His work to the Father and He said, it's finished. And the Father responded and said, here are your children the children of Abraham by faith, purchased by your blood. Here, my son, is a kingdom that will never perish and will one day fill the entire earth. Amidst all the instability around us today, we must remember, we must believe and confess that God has given to His Son and therefore also to us an enduring kingdom. And it's a city with firm foundations that cannot crumble to which Abraham and all of his spiritual children belong by faith. It's a kingdom built with the King of Kings, Jesus Christ Himself, as its chief cornerstone. And it's a city that we enter by faith in Jesus Christ as we embrace the gospel of His Word. And so even as the world crumbles around us, let's not despair, but let's do our work in God's kingdom with a peaceful and a quiet confidence that the true foundations will hold in the end for our Lord Jesus Christ is building a kingdom that will last forever of which you and I are now and always will be living members. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we thank You for the enduring promises of Your Word. So often in the midst of the instability that we experience in this world and in our culture, we're tempted to think that the, the foundations will not hold and that somehow you, O oh Lord, are not as sovereign as your word tells us that you are. Lord, help us to see with the eyes of faith that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You have done all that is necessary to rescue your children from the power of Satan and the power of death and sin. And you have prepared for us an eternal dwelling place that will never be destroyed, will never fade, and never fail. We thank You for this enduring promise that we will for eternity dwell before Your glorious face, that we will see God and belong to Him forever, that all the instability of this earth will one day pass away, and Your kingdom will be all in all. May we put our hope and confidence not in, not in people, not in politicians, not in policies, not in political parties. Help us not to put our confidence in our weak sense of security and safety, 
but put our confidence in our sovereign God, our omniscient, all-seeing God, who will most certainly judge the wicked, but come quickly to defend the cause of the righteous, of His people who have been clothed in the righteousness of His Son. Lord, may that be our goal. May that be our purpose and our focus in life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Turn with me in your Psalter hymnals to number 528. 528. Rejoice, ye pure in heart. Give thanks. Rejoice, give thanks, and sing. Your festal banner wave on high, the cross of Christ your King. It's with that banner before us that we go into the world this week. Let's sing stanzas one and then four, five, and six. One and then the last three of number 528. And let's stand to sing. Saints of God, now go forth into the world with the banner of Christ going before you with this parting blessing from our faithful God. The love of God, the grace of Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Amen.